Welcome to Mountain Talk Monday. I'm your host, Kelly Haywood. Tonight's broadcast features highlights from the 2017 East Kentucky Leadership Conference, which was held in Richmond, Kentucky in April. First, you will hear from the Executive Director of the Mountain Association for Community Economic Development, or MACID, Peter Hillay. Hillay introduces the federal co-chair of the Appalachian Regional Commission, or ARC, Earl Gohl. The ARC just awarded MACID $2 million to support economic transition in eastern Kentucky. So it is very fitting that the theme of the conference was Transitioning Eastern Kentucky, Demographics, Workforce, Economy. We begin tonight's broadcast with Peter Hillay. You know, I love the fact that we have the East Kentucky Leadership Conference in April every year. It's such a beautiful time of year. It's a time of transition. As we transition from redbud winter to dogwood winter to blackberry winter, in and out of spring, as we prepare to burst into summer, and it seems like it's getting here earlier every year. All these beautiful flowers. But you know, the blossoms have to fall to make the fruit. And the fruit has to fall so the seeds can sprout. Summer has to turn to fall and then winter so we can start the cycle all over again, transitions. We see lots of transitions. And we see these transitions in the life of organizations as well. You know, this is the 30th anniversary for this conference, and we've continued to grow and change. We have several new board members. They're bringing new ideas, new energy. We're holding the conference in Richmond this year for the very first time. And next year, we'll be in Hindman, Kentucky, also for the first time. We've ramped up our use of social media, and in large part, that's been made possible by from some great students here at EKU and again under the guidance of Melissa Newman. But even with transitions, some things stay the same, as they should. Ten years ago, our founding board chair, Grady Stumbo, had this to say on the occasion of our 20th anniversary conference. Grady said, the East Kentucky Leadership Foundation is about creating a vision for a vibrant and stimulating place called Eastern Kentucky. It is about each of us looking out not only for our own interest, but for the interest of others. And you know, what Grady said at our 20th conference is just as true today as we celebrate our 30th. We continue to carry that vision of a vibrant and stimulating place called Eastern Kentucky. Now, to live up to those words requires that we continually renew ourselves and that we embrace both tradition and transition. Now, it's easy to embrace tradition, traditions like family, culture, a deep appreciation for the beauty of this place, and as Grady observed, the tradition of looking out for each other. But embracing transition, that can be much harder. And make no mistake, we are in a time of great transition. Nowhere is this more evident than in the changes to our economy. The rapid decline of the coal industry in recent years has laid bare an inescapable truth. We relied too much for too long on a single industry. We were not prepared for this transition. And the reality is that this region has been in deep economic distress for decades. So turning back the clock a few years won't take us where we need to go. The challenge we face is not to revive the old economy, but rather to build a new economy. To have a fair shot at building a new economy requires a level playing field. It's hard to build a new economy 
in a place where broken markets make it harder to start new businesses, where the natural environment has been compromised, where the infrastructure is sorely lacking, and where long-term economic distress has impacted health, education, and demographics. The people of Eastern Kentucky deserve a level playing field. This region, this region literally fueled the growth of our nation. And now, we bear the brunt of the transition in our global energy economy. We owe a debt to these communities, to the workers, to their families. And part of how we pay that debt is by making the investments needed to level the playing field. That's what we mean when we talk about shaping a transition with attention to what is fair, what is just. And creating a just transition is going to take major investment. Now here's the good news. Over the last few years, the federal government has begun a series of significant new investments aimed at supporting a just transition. Through the Power Initiative, the Abandoned Mine Lands Pilot Project, Promised Neighborhoods, the Promised Zone, and the Reclaim Act that Congressman Rogers is working hard to push through Congress. I also want to point out that there's one federal agency that sits at the center of all these new investments, the only federal agency that gives its full attention to our region, the Appalachian Regional Commission. It's not your normal federal agency. These folks know our area well. They know our roads. They know our towns. They know our people, our programs, our problems. They are real partners in this work. It's been far too long since we invited the head of the ARC to speak at the East Kentucky Leadership Conference. In fact, I think the last time was in 1994. So we're very pleased to have Earl Gohl with us tonight. Earl Gohl is the 11th federal co-chair in the history of the ARC. He was nominated by the president and confirmed by the Senate in March of 2010. I believe Earl gets up in the morning and goes to bed at night thinking about Appalachia and about how the ARC can help us move this region forward. And I know he believes in us. In fact, I've heard him say many times, well, I'll leave that line for you, Earl. <laughs> but he shares our vision of a bright future. We've been lucky to have him as an ally in Washington. We're very pleased to have him here tonight. Please join me in welcoming the federal co-chair of the Appalachian Regional Commission, Earl Gohl. Thank you, Peter. It's so, it is so great to be here today. You know, over the last seven years, I've been to Kentucky a few times, and I know many of you in the room, I always learn something new, and I always uh, usually come back with something that, that interests me, that excites me, and, and really gives me a great deal of hope uh, for the direction that Kentucky's moving. About December of, of 2015, the United States Congress provided the Appalachian Regional Commission with $50 million to invest in coal-impacted communities. And that was about all they told us, to that little line. And the challenge was, how do we move forward? And after a series of discussions with our partners in the states and collaboration with a whole variety of people, in March of 2016, we uh, issued uh, an RFP for $50 million and we asked applicants to uh, come back to us with their ideas, with their big ideas. And the first month, we received two applications, one of which we would never fund, and one we would do in a heartbeat. We were a little concerned, 
that we only had two of these applications. We had done a series of TA sessions and discussions throughout the whole region, and we had two applications. It is now almost 14 months later, and we've invested not $50 million, but actually $72 million in about 100 projects throughout coal-impacted communities, about 20 million of which is invested directly in eastern Kentucky and a whole series of other projects that are in adjoining states also reach into Kentucky for a variety of activities from entrepreneurship to tourist promotion to investments in our community colleges. So today I think that you're going to hear a lot about the work that community colleges, that NGOs, that local development districts, that the whole group of, of the ARC investment family are engaged in. And we're very excited about the work that they're doing and the direction that they're going. But you know, ARC, Appalachian Regional Commission, is a partnership. It's a partnership between the federal government and the governors of the states. And in development of this work and in the implementation and the allocation resources that Sandy Donahue and her staff have been incredibly important as we move forward. They helped us in the development of the ideas for the RFP. They helped us with the implementation of the technical assistance. They helped us and they participated actively in the grading and the, and the scoring and the technical assistance that went into all the applications. While we changed up how ARC did uh, award funds in this particular situation, I think that we still were able to maintain a very strong partnership between the states and the federal government and the commission in the direction that we run. So I'm excited to be here today to listen, to be a part of this discussion, and I'm really happy that my partner, the ARC alternate for Kentucky, Sandy Dunhue, Commissioner Sandy Dunhue, is also here. Sandy? What a great crowd today. We're excited to be here. I was not able to attend last year except for the last few hours of the last session, and I really was sorry that I wasn't able to be there for the entire session. In my past life in Washington, D.C., several times I flew down to Kentucky to attend East Kentucky Leadership Conference, and I did that because I'm an East Kentuckian. And I am the first commissioner at the Department of Local Government that is from East Kentucky. So I feel like I understand our problems. I understand what we need to do. And I have an ear and a heart to help the people from Eastern Kentucky. This conference was important enough to us today that I brought several staff members with me and I would like to take a moment to introduce them so that you know who they are, so that when you see them out and about, you'll feel like you can go to them and talk to them and bring them your ideas. And so I'm going to start, and I hope that I don't miss anybody. Maybe they'll wave at me, but I have on the front table here Shane Baker. Shane is from Somerset. He is a field representative for the Department for Local Government. We have Vernon Brown. Vernon is originally, Shane, Shane's from Somerset. Vernon's from Richmond. He worked for many years with USDA Rural Development, so many of you know him already. He's our federal grants director. Peggy Satterley. I really don't have to say anything more. She's our ARC staff person for Kentucky and has been for many years. Erin Thompson. 
Aaron is from South Shore, and we may need him to come up and give us a testimony on how you attract a $1.3 billion aluminum plant to your community. So we're going to give Aaron credit for that today because he is our only South Shore resident here, I presume. And we have Amy Barnes with us. Uh, Amy is originally from Paintsville. She is our state's grants director. And we have Jessica Lee with us. Jessica is from Richmond and she is working with us on our grants program and we're very excited to have the team here with us today. Being from Eastern Kentucky, I can tell you that my father grew up in a time when we had dirt roads at one point before Highway 30 was constructed and still on property that, that I have today. And the creek, the creek was the road, and there are actually trenches in the rock bed of the creek where the wagons drove. So we have a history that goes back many, many years in, in eastern Kentucky, and now today K Kentucky Highway 30 has been constructed not once but twice. We have access to broadband throughout the entire county, 100%, as I just was talking to Mr. Gabbard from PRTC. We have clean drinking water. We have many, many amenities that my father's generation could have only dreamed about when they were growing up in, in Alsa County. And what we must think about is ARC only came into existence in, in the middle of the 1960s, Earl told me today, 1965. And at that time, we had 44 distressed counties in Kentucky. Today, 2017, we have still have 38 distressed counties in Kentucky. So with all of the investment, I understand over $2 billion of ARC investment dollars have gone into Kentucky. We still have a tremendous need. We still have much work to do. But we are making progress. We're making progress in a more rapid manner than we have since 1960. So with each of you here today and your commitment and the projects that you're doing, each step that we take is moving us closer to perhaps maybe someday alleviating our dependency on the need for subsidies from ARC and other such programs to which we become leaders in the nation so that people will look to us for ideas and they will want to come to our beautiful area and they will look to us as examples. It's a pleasure and opportunity to be at the Department of Local Government because just in the short time that I've been there, we've seen some major landmark projects happen that can change the face of our region. The $1.3 billion investment yesterday obviously is something that doesn't happen every day, but there are many smaller projects that have the potential to move our area in the right direction. One of which was one of the projects we were so committed to in the beginning was the Appalachian Wildlife Center in Bell County. And I'm sorry to say that they're not here to do their presentation to you today. But if that project becomes fully realized, we can only imagine the number of travelers that we can pull from Pridgen Board, Sevierville, and Virginia through the Cumberland Gap into our state to admire the same beauty that we all appreciate today. Once we pull those tourists into our state, we have a great opportunity to maximize. It's up to us what we do with them, what services we offer to them, and how we get them to stay and spend their money and help increase our economy. Another landmark project that we spend just an inordinate amount of time on in our office is a project in Paintsville. It's a new CNC project. The gentleman that helped support us in that project actually made a million dollar donation from his own pocket to help us get started. It's a gentleman by the name of Gene Haas. If you Google Haas Manufacturing, you can begin to understand the importance of such a facility in our area. Mr. Haas made the comment that he was happy to invest in Paintsville because every similar investment he had made had resulted in 
new investment in the area, and he gave one example in Virginia where he had invested into a CNC training facility, Rolls-Royce moved in across the street. So that tells us the kind of opportunities that are out there. If we look for them, we reach out, we make the right contacts, and we don't give up. Obviously, all of you here have your power projects. We're excited to hear about those. We can't wait for you to give your presentations and listen to how you're progressing. And we will be happy to look forward 10 years and only imagine what this investment today is going to mean to our economy in eastern Kentucky. And at the Department for Local Government, ARC is but a small aspect of what we do every day, but it's a critical aspect and it's important. And we're happy to be here to support the work you're doing. Thank you. So we're going to try something this afternoon that's perhaps never been tried before. Okay, it's not that complicated, but what we're going to do is we're going to do this in three rounds. So in the first round, you'll hear four presentations from four different projects. And from the Fair Warning Department, those will be the SOAR Highway Project, the Big Sandy CTC Project, the Promise Neighborhood Project, and Mason. Those are four of the projects that are funded with these new federal investments. After you've heard those four, and these are just elevator presentations, they're going to be short, to give you a taste of what the project is. And the second will be the Big Sandy CTC project. Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Kevin Lauks, and I'm with SOAR. Our project, the Unleashing the Power of the Highway Project, was designed to help communities generate economic growth utilizing the Kentucky Wired Broadband Project. And our focus was specifically focused on building capacity for economic development in the region. So we started by providing scholarships for people in our 54-county ARC region to attend the KIED Basic Economic Development Training Course in Lexington. We then followed that up with a follow-up seminar called the Connect Your Economy Practical Seminar to really hone in on those broadband-specific economic development strategies. This was the first step. But to truly unleash the power of the highway, we know we need to take action and implement these strategies. That's why we partnered with EKSEP and their E-Teams project, which was actually out of the EDA portion of this power grant, to come up with the Connect Your Economy pilot program. The E-Teams project is already responsible to date for creating or saving over 100 jobs, and we hope this pilot project will greatly enhance that. So if you want to learn more about how we can work together, partner on this, implement these strategies in your community, and really leverage broadband for economic growth. Thank you. Thank you, Kevin. You want to go on back? Hello, everybody. My name is Kelly Cheney, and I'm with Big Sandy Community and Technical College. We are really excited to present the East Kentucky Cole County Transformation Project. It is a project that has many partners, Southeast Community Technical College, Hazard Community Technical College, Big Sandy, of course, EKSEPT, and SOAR make up the governing body for this project. To say that we're excited is an understatement, but some of the goals of this project is to create digital hubs throughout East Kentucky, particularly at our three campuses, to promote a digital economy in Eastern Kentucky. And for example, some of the focus that we have is medical coding because we do believe there is opportunity in our area for medical coders to work remotely, provided they have immersive training and certification to be able to do the job. We feel like they can do that from right here in Eastern Kentucky. The other part of our project is cybersecurity and advanced manufacturing. We're thrilled to have those sectors involved in our power grant. We do think it's a game changer for Eastern Kentucky and the 16 counties we serve. 
some of the important things is we are definitely reliant on coal in our history, but moving forward, we need to look at things and do things differently. And this is a way for us to make Eastern Kentucky a hub of digital economy and, and change lives. So we're excited to do that. We're excited to have the opportunity. And we certainly thank ARC for the project. Hi, I'm Dreema Gentry uh, from Berea College. And we actually have a Department of Education grant, not a power investment. Um, the U.S. Department of Education has invested $30 million over the next five years in Knox County, in our Knox County Promise neighborhood. A promised neighborhood is really looking at what will happen in a community if you start investing in children from birth all the way to 24, age 24, providing them with the academics, the social, and the experiences to ensure their success in school. So our partnerships in this program are the Knox County School System, Barberville Independent, Corbin Independent School District, so we're working with all three of those school districts, Operation Unite, who's helping us really address the substance abuse issue and how do we do prevention work. Save the Children, who is really is bringing their intervention of, of home visiting into the communities there for the zero to five. And then the Promise Zone, Kentucky Highlands Investment Corporation, is helping us pull it all together and ensure that all partners are um, engaged. Um, so we're here, so come and hear about the Promise Neighborhood. And Mason's Power Project is called ETEC, which is Economic Transition for Eastern Kentucky. We're focused on helping to shape a just transition and build a new economy for Eastern Kentucky. And we're doing this with several strategies, many of which relate to strengthening the entrepreneurial ecosystem and supporting the entrepreneurs that will help to build the new economy. In doing that, we're focused on several key sectors, including local foods, tourism, sustainable forestry, healthcare, and a special focus on energy, energy efficiency and renewables. And through the Power Project, one of our activities will be supporting 12 new energy interns. These are gonna be displaced coal industry workers who we're gonna identify in partnership with EKSEP and we'll retrain them to do energy efficiency, energy auditing and energy retrofits. We're, uh, as I said, partnering with EKSEP. We're also partnering with some of the utility co-ops in Eastern Kentucky and with housing organizations in Eastern Kentucky. In addition, we're developing new capital tools to help entrepreneurs start up and help existing enterprises grow. And these include a venture capital loan fund, a collateral support fund, and a brand new loan product that matches crowdsourcing in place of traditional underwriting strategies so that we can help people who are starting up with Kiva loans or Kickstarters to add a little bit more capital and get their endeavor off the ground. And now we'll have the national anthem by Chloe Spencer from Madison Central High School. Oh, say can you see by the dawn's early light what so proudly we hailed at the twilight's last gleam, whose broad stripes and bright stars through the perilous fight o'er the ramparts we were so gallantly 
Please join me in welcoming the federal co-chair of the Appalachian Regional Commission, Earl Gold. It's also great, Commissioner Donahue is here with us uh, this evening. As you're aware, uh, Sandy Donahue, the uh, Commissioner of the Department of Local Government Services, serves as the alternate for uh, the governor at ARC, which means she has a vote. So from my point of view, she's an incredibly important individual. But Cindy's been a great partner. She has worked with us. She has pushed us. She has encouraged us. And she has stood by us. In fact, uh, next week, Cindy is traveling to Washington, D.C. to testify uh, in support of the ARC appropriation for 2018. That, Cindy, is a great step. And we want to thank you for that. You know, Appalachia really is the next great investment opportunity in America. Throughout the region, throughout the region, and the reason I say that is because throughout the region, there are this incredible group of folks who get up every day, who work incredibly hard, it's almost like an army. They work incredibly hard to see that their community is a better place for their kids and their grandkids than it was for themselves. These folks, all kinds of folks, they're teachers, they're nurses, they're entrepreneurs, they're, they're store owners, they're, 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 sometimes they're just troublemakers like you and me. But it is an army. And also within this region, there are opportunities and there are assets that really are the foundation for economic diversification, economic growth, and a stronger economic future for our kids and for our communities. The challenge that we have, the challenge that we all share, are what are the policies, what are the actions, what is it that we need to do to fulfill this promise? What are the assets we need to invest in and strengthen? What is the ecosystem that we need to build and have in place to make sure that when working families collide with opportunities, that they're successful and that our communities grow and sustain themselves? Our mission, our mission is to do that work. And that's what ARC was really created to do, to partner with communities throughout the 420 counties to figure out what makes sense, what are those actions, what are those ecosystems, what are those assets 
that we need to strengthen. You know, the American economy has been changing constantly since those fellows landed over there in Jamestown in 1608 or whenever that was, 409, 10 years ago. The difference is that it's changing at a much faster, much more dramatic rate, much more disruptive to businesses and industry in just about every sector of the economy. It's also providing, and that change provides incredible disruption, but also provides incredible benefits. And the challenge that we have, the challenge that we share, is how do we keep ahead of that? How do we take advantage of that? How do we make sure that, that those changes work for us as opposed to against us? There's a guy named uh, Tom Friedman who wrote a book not too long ago called Thank You for Being Late. And in his book, he talks about these dramatic changes, about how the market has changed, how technology has changed, how Mother Earth has changed, and how it's so important that we focus on staying ahead. You know, we live in a time right now where the largest retailer in the United States, probably in the world, doesn't own any stores. The largest cab company owns no cars. The largest hotel company owns no hotels. Not to mention how Twitter, Facebook, Netflix, Snapchat have changed our lives. The changes are real, and they're a real challenge for us. But let me just say this, that the work that we're doing and the energy and the, our agenda, folks in other parts of the country are looking at what we're doing. They're really interested. The, the economic developers are really interested in Eastern Kentucky and the work that we're all doing. That we're working to, to really to push back on this disruption and to build an economy where families can thrive in Eastern Kentucky. We're on the right track. We're on the right track. And the work that we've seen, the work of SOAR, where we've taken, where actually not we, where you have taken these partnerships and have been able to keep them going and build on them, where you've been able to work through a whole series of task force and figure out an agenda and begin to move on it. That type of work is not all that usual in most communities across the United States of America. And it really provides an example of what can happen in the rest of Appalachia. The work of philanthropy coming to the table and being important partners in some of our projects in order to provide capital for the long term is something that we've not seen before. And that statement and that work with the uh, power project uh, in, in KMEC of uh, providing some opportunity to be able to implement big ideas is an important step forward for Eastern Kentucky. One of the things that really excites me is the next generation. The work of down in Harlan with it's great to be young in the mountains. I have the opportunity every year to spend some time with them. And you want to talk about energy? You want to talk about looking forward? You want to talk about working through challenging times and trying to figure out how to make a contribution? Those are the kids. That level of energy is incredible. Over the last couple of months, I've had the opportunity to visit uh, Big Sandy and sit down and talk with the, with the young folks who have gone through the techie training program. And it is, an amazing experience to be able to sit down with 35 
folks who are a lot younger than I am and listen to their story of how they've dealt with challenges, how they've attacked this new work that they never thought that they would do, a set of skills that were totally foreign to them and they didn't really think were marketable or useful in Eastern Kentucky that they have grasped and they're planning to build on and to be able to move forward with. That's the type of energy. That's the type of the energy. And of course, it would be inappropriate for me to leave out the work of my favorite millennial in Eastern Kentucky, of Jarrett taking the controls and taking the operation of SOAR, but the work that he and the leadership he has provided in guiding SOAR and really making it an operation or organization that makes a difference. And in terms of entrepreneurship, Today we had the opportunity to sit down and talk with all the different organizations that are engaged in developing entrepreneurs in the region. It was an impressive group. It was an impressive group, and it was a group that understood it was only not, not only about technical assistance and education and learning, but it's also about capital and finance and the, the ability to bring folks to the bank and being able to make things work and do the ability to see that there's a, there's a real opportunity here. And of course, the, the entrepreneur that we all look to, or at least I look to, is the work that, that Rusty Justice had brought to Pikeville and his vision and his leadership to put together BitSource and to keep it going and to build on it, to provide a real technology company here in Eastern Kentucky. There are great things happening here. There are really great things. We all have great hope for Kentucky Wired. And while we know it's a, it's a slog, it is a tough, tough project. It is a long distance with a lot of telephone poles and a lot of lawyers and a lot of telephone companies. But at the end of the day, at the end of the day, we all slog through that process. We have an important piece of infrastructure that will help us really move forward, not only for this generation, but for the next generation. I'm also very excited about the fact that we're not sitting around waiting for Kentucky Wired to, to be completed. The work of the hackathons that, are, that have occurred throughout the high schools and some of the community colleges in, in really developing skills on, in around software. That too is very exciting. But, the, but one of the most important pieces of all these pieces is the investment and the energy that folks have put around the strengthening of the education system here in this part of the state. The work of KVAC in providing opportunities for teachers to gain better skills and to challenge students in a variety of competitions is so very important. The work of the community colleges, and we've been able to invest substantially in all the community colleges in Eastern Kentucky as a way of building that capacity and making sure that those organizations have the ability to respond and to work with folks who are leading the coal industry. There's also the importance and the critical role that Jeff Whitehead and E.K. Stepp have played here in Eastern Kentucky. We have a lot of grantees at ARC. We have a lot of grantees. There is no grantee that I am more confident in terms of what he's going, he's going to do what he says he's going to do, and he's going to work incredibly hard to get the job done. And it's Jeff's work that is really something that inspires me every day to see his ability to sit down and work through many of the most difficult challenges. And we can never leave the topic of education without talking about Governor Patton. Amazing. There are communities um, throughout Appalachia who have colleges, 
And sometimes those colleges participate in the community, and sometimes they don't. It's always nice that they're there, but they're not always making a contribution to the future of that community. But the work of the governor and, and his commitment to making University of Pikeville an important generator of not only a healthcare system and the, and the workforce that supports the healthcare system, but as an economic engine for Pikeville and the contribution it makes, it is such an important piece. I could talk for a long time about the work and the activity that is occurring here in eastern Kentucky. I didn't even mention the Elk Center, which is an important piece of the tourism strategy. And I haven't really talked very much about some of the small business activities that we're investing in. But you know, this is the work that folks outside of Kentucky are really interested in. They're interested in it because they see us working incredibly hard to strengthen our local economy from this work, using our grit, our talent, our energy, of the folks who live here, and the assets that we have, both the human assets and the natural assets. They're interested because we're collaborating at unprecedented levels. We're able to get past the county lines. We're able to get past other lines that have that just limit our ability to think and work and get things done. You know, for me, I get pretty excited about this stuff. I've had the incredible privilege of serving as the federal co-chair for the past seven years. And from my point of view, I'm incredibly hopeful, energetic, optimistic, and believe in Appalachia, Kentucky. I believe we've got a great future. I also know I also know that there are going to be days along the way here when we're going to stub our toe, that they're not going to be as great as the other day. Not every day is going to be a home run. But what's important about those days is that we pick ourselves up and that what I would ask, I would ask all of you, that whenever there's a good day for Eastern Kentucky or not so good day, when you're walking out of the house, I want you to remember I want you to remember that what you felt like, what you thought, that cold, snowy day back in December 2013 when most of you were sitting in the Pikeville Conference Center, the energy you felt, the commitment you felt, the belief you felt about the future of this part of of the world, your hometown. It's when we were all committed to developing collaborations, that we were all committed to working regionally to develop and implement plans, to invest our energy and our imaginations. It was the day that we promised ourselves and promised our neighbors that we would reach out and we would move <coughs> Eastern Kentucky to another level. And for me, that is the day that Appalachia became the next great investment opportunity in America. It's so great to see you today. Thank you. Earl, thanks for being here. Thank you for those words of encouragement. Thank you all for the encouragement that collectively you are to each other and to all of us.
Our website is eklf.org, and you should like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. I have no idea how to do that, but I'm sure some of you do. I'm Kelly Haywood, and you are listening to Mountain Talk Monday on WMMT. Real stories, real news, real people radio, brought to you straight from the heart of central Appalachia. Thanks for listening. Uh, the next tune I'm going to play is called High Top Shoes. country is waiting to see if President Trump's rollbacks of environmental regulations will boost the mining business. But some bipartisan proposals before Congress offer different ways to help. Ohio Valley Resource reporters offer some analysis of three ideas that could help mend mining country. From his campaign rallies to White House events, President Trump has repeatedly pledged to bring jobs back to coal country. We are going to put our coal miners back to work. But a number of industry analysts doubt those jobs are coming back. A Columbia University study concludes that Trump's regulatory rollbacks won't make much difference. And that means that U.S. coal production and employment is going to be either flat or declining regardless of policy that the Trump administration puts in place. That's researcher Trevor Hauser, whose study showed that environmental regulations are responsible for only about 3 to 5 percent of the industry's decline. 
But some other proposals in Congress promise to help miners and mining communities meet economic and health challenges. Resource reporters Benny Becker, Becca Schimmel, and Glennis Board have been looking into those proposals, and they join us now. Glennis, let's start with something called the Reclaim Act. What's the idea there? Right. Well, the big idea here is to accelerate reclamation of abandoned mine land by dispersing a billion dollars of abandoned mine land funds, which is a federal fund, over a five-year period, and to leverage increased mine reclamation projects to increase long-term economic businesses on these reclaimed mine sites. The bill would speed up spending from this fund that was established decades ago for the expressed purpose of restoring abandoned coal mining lands, and especially in areas that have lost coal jobs. Now, while the number of employed miners is dropping, there are still thousands of retired miners, and their benefits are looking pretty shaky. Becca, you've been reporting on this. What's the latest? Miners sought their health and pension benefits in in the Miners Protection Act. And their health benefits were secured, but not pensions, with language from a bill Mitch McConnell introduced in January. And miners have stated that they'll continue to fight for these pensions, and there are about 43,000 retirees in our region whose pension program could become insolvent without congressional action. Another big concern for both active and retired miners is the monitoring and treatment for black lung disease. Benny, you've been reporting on the resurgence of black lung in our region. What does that mean for the treatment available? Well, there, there is, as you said, there's a huge number of miners compared to what we've seen in the past who are coming down with the worst form of black lung and often at younger ages. So that's putting a lot of pressure on the treatment centers. These uh, black lung clinics, they were set up with federal funding in 1972. It was supposed to be $10 million a year, but um, it's it's been significantly lower than that. So uh, a group of congressmen has proposed that the funding be returned up to $10 million, which was what was originally promised. All three of these proposals, we should mention, have bipartisan support. That letter requesting additional black lung funding, the Reclaim Act, the Miners Act, all have support across the aisle. But a question to you guys, do we see any indication of support from the White House? Regarding the Reclaim Act, um, I, I haven't heard anything out of the White House about it, nothing yet. President Trump says he supports minors and he stands with them, but there's no specifics on what that might mean. Yeah, lots of general general support, but no specific promises on black lung either. Resource reporters Benny Becker, Becca Schimmel, and Glennis Board, thank you all very much. And there's much more information on this station's website. For the Ohio Valley Resource, I'm Jeff Young. The Ohio Valley Resource is made possible with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting and WMMT. Thank you for listening to this edition of Mountain Talk Monday. The special music for this broadcast was from the Last Possum Up the Tree album by George Gibson, which can be found on the June Apple label. The song was High Top Shoes. You can listen to this episode again right on our website at www.wmmt.org or download it as a podcast and be sure to share it with your friends. Again, thank you all for listening. Talk slow. 
talk like you mean it. Talk the way the people in this part of the country talk. Don't talk like those people who try to act like they're from some big city. When they try to sell us something, they talk too fast. Why are they trying to fast talk us? Talk slow and play music we like. That's the WMMT way. The reason we give money to WMMT is because we need WMMT. It helps us to get through one more day. The people we hear are us. WMMT is our station. We have to support it. We have to. It's ours. I mean it. Talk slow. Hi, this is Brett Ratliff. We are a not-for-profit community radio station, and twice a year we come to you to ask for your help to keep community radio alive here in the mountains of southeast Kentucky and southwest Virginia. We also serve portions of southern West Virginia, East Tennessee, and western North Carolina. We rely on listeners like you to help pay the bills and to keep this unique voice of the mountain people and our communities alive and well in order to share our story with the whole world through the airwaves of WMMT. If you appreciate WMMT and like what you hear, please consider giving us a donation. You can do so by logging on to our website at WMMT.org and leaving your tax-deductible, feel-good contribution today. Again, that's WMMT.org. We appreciate your support, and thanks for listening. WMMT is truly your radio station. We have volunteer DJs from your community playing your favorite music. And with WMMT's wide variety of public affairs programming, we're telling your stories. Good evening and welcome to the Breaking Beans Radio Show. Welcome to History Alive on WMMT Mountain Community Radio. Hello and welcome to Radio from the Heart of Appalachia to the Young at Heart right here on your listener-supported WMMT. You're listening to Shoe Buddy Higher Ground Radio. Welcome to this edition of Mountain Talk Monday. This is Mountain News and World Report. Tune into our public affairs programming Monday through Thursday from 6 to 7 p.m. and on Sundays from 10 a.m. to 1 p.m. You can find the public affairs schedule online at WMMT.org, where you can also stream the latest shows or look through our archive. You can also find Mountain Talk Monday and Mountain News and World Report as podcasts on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. Dedicated to real stories, real news, and real people radio, this is your WMMT. I'm Lisa Goldberg. And I'm Rebecca Steinfeld of Homefront Chronicles, a program where families tell their stories. Today from the Homefront, Ladies' Night. Once you're a mom, does your vision of the ultimate night out become different from before? Shortly after becoming a mother for the first time, Myla Rugi realized that something was missing for she and her friends. She took matters into her own hands and created one of the very first events of its kind in the U.S., a prom just for moms. So the mom prom was born one night when I was rocking my son to sleep. He was three months old. It was 2008. I was exhausted. I had just met a whole bunch of new moms in my peps group, and we were talking about how hard motherhood was. And I was just rocking him and thinking about 
how no one was telling me what a good job I was doing and nobody was telling me how excellent um, my parenting was. And I didn't at that point feel like I was doing a very good job. And I felt very alone and very tired and very unable to explain how difficult it was. And in that moment, I thought about that I really wanted a party. And I felt like my friends needed a party and we needed to celebrate and honor how hard moms work. And Frankly, also, for some reason in that moment, I thought about how much I love to dance and how much I don't like people rubbing on me on a dance floor. And so I thought about I'd always wanted to have a ladies-only dance party, and so that sort of meshed. And actually, in that moment, I thought of the term mom prom. And so as I went through the process of thinking about what it would look like, mom prom went through many iterations, who it would benefit, where it would be. And I had a tiny baby, so it took a while to get it all figured out. But um, in April of 2010 was the first mom prom. I didn't know how many people were coming. I sold 100 tickets the day before the event. I was floored. I thought, you know, five of my friends and my mom might show up. And there were all these women that came to mom prom. And one of the things that has remained but was very evident in the first mom prom that I didn't actually plan for or understand would happen is... A few people came by themselves, and one in particular I remember, and she came by herself. And if you look at the photos over the span of the evening, the first one, you see her in the photo by herself, and by the end of the night, she's in a group shot with all these other moms. And that process of meeting moms and being sort of in the trench together, frankly, and moms that were of all different age ranges and all different kid ages. So I roll with moms of one-year-olds, and I don't have a lot of reason to hang out with moms of 11- and 15-year-olds, but we all have a very similar experience in terms of that, let's celebrate and honor how hard we're working. And so that idea that everybody in that space, it's like being in the ladies' room, like everybody gets you and everybody understands. And when I planned the mom prom, I didn't understand that that would happen. And that remains one of my favorite parts of mom prom. And one of the quotes that I read and love is this woman was asked why she comes to mom prom and she says to be free. And that's for me really deep down what it's about. It's not about the awesome cupcakes and the candy and the wine and the awesome DJ. That's all great. But that element of no one's on the clock, no one's at the bar, like, honey, can we go? You know, there's this element of just go for it. And Nobody cares what you look like and what you're doing. So you can dance like Elaine from Seinfeld and no one cares. And you can totally be excited about having a night out with your friends. And um, that part of it has been big. I guess the other piece I should mention is that over time, what's happened is that the people that benefit from mom prom, so it benefits Postpartum Support International of Washington, which supports moms and dads with mood disorders after the birth of a child. And... Initially, um, a lot of people would support the event that maybe knew somebody. They would donate um, to the event. They would donate prizes to the raffle because they knew somebody was affected or they were affected directly. And it's still incredibly taboo to talk about, which is really unfortunate, um, even though we try really hard to sort of put it out there. But what has happened definitely last year gelled where people would come to me. And at the event, it was not only this Celebrate and Honor Moms piece, but it was also all these people who had been survivors of postpartum mood disorders, then seeing these 200 other people there supporting them and excited for them and giving money to things that were supporting them. And so for them, it's twofold. They get not only a night out and get to party and have a really good time as a survivor and to have joy in their life. But then in addition to that, there are all these other people there that are 
you know, openly stating, I support this and I support you. And I may not be a survivor, but I absolutely understand where you have come from and I'm there to be there for, for you. And so that, all of that in 2008, rocking my kid to sleep was not what I was thinking was going to happen, but that's been incredibly moving and part of the huge reward of doing the work that I do. Mom Prom will take place this year on May 17th at the Fremont Abbey. All proceeds will benefit Postpartum Support International of Washington. For more information, go to seattlemomprom.com. To listen to more stories or to tell us yours, visit our website at hfchronicles.com or find us on iTunes. Homefront Chronicles, because every family has a story. Be sure to tell us yours. Saturday, May 27th at 9.30 a.m. at the Holly Hills Mall Restaurant in the Holly Hills Shopping Center. There will be a special breakfast plan for anyone who attended Caney Junior College or Alice Lloyd College, including those who did not graduate but just attended. For more information and to make a reservation due to limited seating, Holly Hills Mall Restaurant, 606-785-0909, Shelly Ambergy, 606-946-2832. Or Lowell Conley, 606-358-9325. Your 